0: Well, good morning church. Good morning. We are um, so for the next few weeks we're going to be following along the beginning part of the Gospel of Mark. Now, if you remember a few weeks back, I was talking about how the different gospel writers had different styles and tones. We talked about John, who was a uh, kind of a hippie, I mean like very very spiritual and very um you know, he just looked at the world in kind of a different way. Mark has a very distinctive tone, too. Um, Mark, and, and I say this uh, partly because I'm married to an English major, and so with all the science references I've, I've thrown at you guys over the last couple months, I've got I to get some literature references in here. Mark writes like Ernest Hemingway, right? Like a, um, a Dickens novel is like this. A Hemingway novel is like this, right? Um, cuz he he was very concise you know he would never use five words if two could do the job and that's that's the way mark is you know he, he he cuts to the chase there's no nativity story in the gospel of mark there's no wise men he just you know he just jumps right into john the baptist and his prophetic ministry John, John the Baptist, not John the Evangelist. John was, um, by any standard, kind of a weird dude. Um, He lived out in the middle of nowhere. Like, literally, I'm not talking about a farm or something, you know. I know some folks here are like, I'm going to go out to the the property and have a little downtime. He he lived in the wilderness. And, And I know that, like, when I say wilderness, that sounds like a place to fish or hunt or something. But um, John wasn't a hunter, or a fisherman. He, guys, he ate he ate bugs. And um, and honey, honey that he found in trees or in, in rocks. He, you know, s- some folks like to go camping and live off the bounty of the land. This guy lived off the land, but there was no bounty. In this man's way of life. And um, and. And what's more, he didn't dress like a normal person. You know, if you picture um, what people wore in Jesus' day, I don't know how accurate our picture is, but you know, you picture people wearing like linen robes and stuff with like a sash kind of thing. That's not what John looked like. John John wore uh, sort of a shaggy cloak and a, a big leather belt it was simple stuff, it was cheap stuff. If if you stood John next to a Pharisee, like they were polar opposites. The Pharisee wore nice, nice, soft clothes, fine, lots of layers and, you know, adornments. John was just, I mean, he, virtually a wild man. Now, he wasn't odd for the sake of being odd, right? Like, this stuff wasn't, you know, his his, it wasn't his um how do I say this preference to wear these things. He wasn't in the wilderness for fun or because the real estate was cheap. Uh, he didn't eat bugs because he was on some sort of like fad paleo diet or something. He he didn't wear camel's hair because it was fashionable or comfortable. He did these things because they were part of God's call for him. John's message was a message of repentance. That's how it was described in Mark. You know, He preached a baptism for repentance. And all these outward signs pointed at that repentance. If you read through your Old Testament, you'll find that all over the place, People forsake wearing fine clothes and instead opt for rough apparel like sackcloth as part of a grieving process. And you'll find um, quite often that that grieving was over their own sinfulness. Fasting, too. While there's a number of reasons you might do it, fasting was often part of the process of repentance. Repentance. The prophet Joel said, um, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now, when we say the word fast and our in our modern day, I think what comes to people's mind right away is just you know, a water-only fast. But that, that's, there are several different types of fasting that you can find in the Bible. And the one common theme is refraining from rich foods. That would seem to be a pretty good description, I think, of John's diet. So if you understand what you're looking at, you see in John's lifestyle, it's not so much a, a curiosity as it is a testimony And and along with that comes an authenticity. Because he's not just preaching repentance, he is day in and day out, outwardly identifying himself as one of the people who needs to repent. He doesn't preach down to the crowds, you understand? He is part of the crowd. but this message and this way of dressing and this location they all substantiate John in another way if you were in if you're a contemporary of John right if you lived in Jesus day and you grabbed any Jewish person and you described what John looked like was a shaggy guy with shaggy clothes and a leather belt they would they would think or they would tell you perhaps that you were describing Elijah, the prophet. See, Elijah wore a shaggy coat of camel's hair and a broad leather belt, and that was uncommon in his day too. In fact, what he wore was so distinctive that the king of Israel could identify Elijah just by somebody describing what he looked like. He wore those shaggy clothes and this big bell. That guy. Now, if you know anything about the story of Elijah, Elijah is in many ways considered to be the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. And um, he had a successor as well. And and that successor was named Elisha. You've got to be, you know, articulate when you say this. Elijah and Elisha. And when he when he marked Elijah. as his successor, he he took off his cloak and he put it over Elisha and said, you know, you are my successor. He put it back on. And then one of the things that's distinctive about Elijah, he doesn't die. Like he just doesn't die. At the end of his life, um, he's carried up to heaven. And when that happens, his cloak falls to the ground, this shaggy camel garment. And Elisha puts it on and then continues on in his prophetic ministry. And that's when he starts doing miracles and doing all the things that marks him as a prophet. So when, when John shows up, it's like Elijah 2.0. He, he looks like him. He sounds like him. Just just like the guy you heard in the, about in the synagogues all those years, and and the things that he's preaching are, are right in line with Elijah. Repent, repent. The kingdom of God is near. So that's what he looked like. His location was also important. Um, Mark, when he begins his gospel, he says um, just before the verses we read in verse verse three, I believe he he quotes the prophet Isaiah, saying that John is what Isaiah prophesied. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Israel hadn't had a prophet in hundreds of years. This man, John He's the first one. And even though his public ministry was pretty short, he was unquestionably the most important of all the other prophets. See, every other prophet, and there's a lot of them in the Old Testament, even people we don't think about necessarily. Like the Bible calls David a prophet. The Bible called Moses a prophet. I mean, there's a number of people that get called prophets. Every one of those prophets had... Um, a message, they, they pointed toward the promise that Messiah would come. John did the exact thing. He pointed that Messiah would come until a really pivotal moment when Jesus showed up at the Jordan River. And then he got to say something that no prophet before him would ever get to say. No longer was he preaching, prepare the way of the Lord. Now his message is, behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. According to Mark, John also preached that Jesus would forever change baptism. Um, what we do in church is different than what John did um, because we, we do the baptism that Jesus Christ has given. What John did um, in the Jordan was a, an outward sign of repentance, Right? You would go down to the water and you say, I'm a sinner and I, 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 I confess and I turn from my sins and you would be lowered into the water, the water would be applied to you and you'd come up repentant. The Old Testament had um, several occasions where a washing, that's what baptism means, washing, was performed as part of a purification ritual. And this was done as an act of obedience to God. With a symbolic meaning. That's what John did. But John said that the baptism of Jesus would be something more than that. It wouldn't be symbolic, it would be a washing that that did something that that water couldn't do. He said that those baptized into Christ would be washed by the Holy Spirit, the creative, restorative, transformative presence of God Himself. And so it might seem to you knowing what you know that it's a little weird for Jesus to go and ask John to baptize him. John had a preached a baptism for repentance and Jesus never sinned, so he had no sins to repent of. And Jesus, according to John, was supposed to change the baptism forever. So Jesus should do the baptizing in the situation, right? And yet he he wades into the water and asks John to baptize him. Why? Jesus gives an answer. If you, read, if you read in Matthew, when Matthew tells this story, Jesus gives an answer because John says the same thing. He says, you should baptize me. And Jesus says, simply, we're going to do this needs to happen to fulfill all righteousness. That's kind of a cryptic phrase, I think, for us, but the the sense of it seems to be that Jesus is saying, we're going to do this because this is what needs to be done. That doesn't really answer the question of why, Not, not much, but I think there are some answers that we can draw from Scripture. I think it's helpful to consider that Jesus never asks us to do anything that he didn't do first. He leads from, as I say, he leads from the front, and his actions are aligned perfectly with his teachings. He, he shared in the Eucharist with his disciples and told them, do this in remembrance of me. He forgave his enemies, just as he has asked us to do. He proclaimed the gospel, just as he has asked us to do. He was baptized, just as he has asked us to do. And understanding that helps us understand more. See, a beautiful thing happened when Jesus came up out of the water. The heavens opened. The Holy Spirit came to rest on him. And in that moment, God the Father himself spoke down from heaven over Jesus, and he said, you are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. I think that a significant part of the reason that this baptism took place in this way, remember, um, all Judea and Jerusalem was going out to be baptized. So it was a very public event. I think part of the reason that it happened in this way at this time was so that we could see and hear things that are true in our baptism even though maybe we can't see or hear them when that happens to us. Because, like, you know, Jesus could have just showed up, died on the cross, rose from the dead, and that was it. But he spent time walking with us and, and trying to show us the truths of God's kingdom. And he, in a very real way, made manifest spiritual realities that we wouldn't see otherwise. So when you were baptized, I hope you know that when you were baptized, the Holy Spirit came to rest on you. When you were baptized, I hope you know that that God looked at you in that moment, and he said of you, you are my beloved child, and I'm very pleased with you. Maybe you didn't hear the angel singing, that day. Maybe you didn't see the sky's part or feel a dove land on your shoulder, but make no mistake, the picture we see in Jesus' baptism was a preview of what would happen at mine and at yours. But there's still more going on at Jesus' baptism. You remember that I told you that Mark, when he wrote, he just he was very concise and cut to the chase, right? Well, the first words of the whole book go like this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he cuts straight to John and the story we read today. So what does it mean that this is the beginning? Well, for 30 years, Jesus has lived a fairly normal life, except for maybe the first couple of years. He's been a tradesman. He's been living, taking care of his mom, um, living a quiet life in Nazareth. But this, this time where he goes into the water and is baptized, this is a turning point. This is the moment when Jesus steps into his role as the Messiah in a public and permanent way. In other words, this is the beginning of the road that leads to the cross. After all, when we... When, we, when John called Jesus the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, he was saying that Jesus was going to be sacrificed. That's what lambs do to take away sin. He was saying that every sin and wrongdoing, that the, the weight of every mistake and the punishment for every evil would be laid on Jesus. And he'd carry them to the grave. This baptism marked Jesus as the one destined to die. And if you think that's heavy, I should tell you that in your baptism, you are folded into that death as well. Romans chapter 6, and we quoted this earlier in our service today. Romans chapter 6 says this, Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore with him. Oh, I'm sorry, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This is a this is a profound thing. It's a life-changing thing when you understand it. I think I think a lot of us have fear of of death, fear of an end. And and actually, what we read here in the scripture is that in baptism, Jesus took your death and you were united with his. And because he rose from the grave, if you're united in his death, you're united also with him in his resurrection. This baptism marks you as somebody who isn't waiting on a new life. Do you understand what I'm saying? In your baptism, you have a new life an eternal life that starts now and won't ever stop. Sure, your body will pass away, but, you know, uh, your spirit won't. What you got in your baptism is a transformation, an adoption, uh, an inheritance that can never be taken away from you. And all that was revealed to us when Jesus went down to the river. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, and that in those baptismal waters, he welcomed us into him. We give you thanks for the simplicity and the beauty that comes from simple water and a simple promise from you. We give you thanks, Lord, that we have a a glimpse in Jesus Christ in a concrete way of spiritual things we wouldn't see otherwise. That you have sent your Holy Spirit upon us, filled us, empowered us. That you have dedicated us with a mission and a purpose. That you look at us not as strangers or enemies, but as your beloved children. Help us, Lord, when we struggle with doubts and fears or anxiety or depression or, or whatever assails our hearts help us to remember this truth that we aren't we aren't who we think we are we are who you say we are all this we pray in Jesus name Amen